I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow in the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School here at the ANU and I'm the Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Anagreta, we're back in the studio once again, which is very exciting. It is so nice to be actually sitting opposite you in real life. It is really fantastic. And it was really great being back in the studio last week as well. It was. I really enjoyed last week's episode. I think there were many things that we could have talked about during the week that was International Women's Day. Mm. But I'm really glad that we looked at the nature of Australia's social security system and what that means for women. This is such a fundamentally important issue and such an issue of inequity in Australia that we really do need to talk about it. We really do need to shift it. Yeah, no, c- central messages for, for hashtag value caring. Yes, absolutely. So we are back today with what is going to be, I, I know, another fantastic conversation. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, which is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And we offer, as many of our listeners know, an amazing range of degree programs, um, executive education, and you can find out more about those programs on our website, which is at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And Anagreta, I'm, I'm teaching a couple of courses at the moment. So while I'm teaching, I'm always reminded of, how, reminded of just how amazing our students are and what a great place this is to be, to be studying. And I'm teaching an intensive course at the moment on poverty reduction and had the great pleasure of talking to one of our old friends, Dr. Robert Glasser. Mm. And, of course, Robert came into the class to talk about climate change and what that means globally for poverty mm. and inequality. Yeah. But for, for any of our listeners who didn't hear our conversations with Robert last year around the time of COP26, I'd really encourage them to go and have a listen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that was a great conversation with Robert. I always learned so much from speaking with him, particularly on climate change and on the global perspectives there. Yep, I feel exactly the same way. So it's it's always a pleasure. And today we are again talking mm. climate and talking with some incredible guests. Yeah, I suspect that climate change might be on the minds of a number of our listeners, particularly if you live anywhere in Australia. Because in Australia today, there are families without homes, without power, who are worried about insurance, who are wondering how to assess the risks of rebuilding, risks that come from where we live and the natural hazards that we face regularly now in our beautiful country. Those families may have lost their homes, businesses or towns just recently in the devastating floods that affected southern Queensland, northern New South Wales and even parts of Sydney, or they might still be working through recovery after bushfires of black summer. Two major disasters only a few years apart and with remarkable similarities in the level of under-preparation despite meteorological forecasts to suggest these heightened risks. Australia has a long history of impressive, destructive natural disasters. However, recent years have been unprecedented in intensity, severity and destruction, with the fingerprint of our changing climate increasingly obvious. Our government has responded with reports such as the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements, which we discussed on the pod only just a few months ago. And yet our disaster preparation and planning for the recent floods does not seem to have been informed by those lessons from Black Summer. 
Recent IPCC sixth assessment report from the Working Group 2 on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability describes the challenges that we face today and offers us a glimpse of that challenging future, a future for which we need to prepare now. So today we talk climate change, understanding the risks, and crucially, how we can prepare, shifting from the disaster response to proactive preparation for the decades ahead. And who have we got joining us today to discuss this, Sharon? We've got two amazing guests to to talk through these critically important issues and, and issues that are just so real at the moment, Anna Greta. Our first guest is... Professor Barbara Norman. Barbara is Professor and Foundation Chair of Urban and Regional Planning and Director of the Canberra Urban and Regional Futures at the University of Canberra. She's also a visiting fellow here at the Australian National University. She's a former chair of the ACT Climate Change Council and Barbara's current research and teaching interests include sustainable cities and regions, coastal planning, climate change adaptation, and urban governance. Barbara was a contributing author to IPCC 5 Working Group 2, the report on impacts in 2013. It's hard to imagine someone better placed to have this conversation with us today, Anna Greta. We also have Professor Mark Howden. Mark is, of course, a good friend of ours here on Policy Forum Pod. He's Director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions here at the ANU. He's Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, and a current Chair of the ACT Climate Change Council. Mark has worked on climate variability, climate change, innovation and adaptation issues for over 30 years. He has been a major contributor to the IPCC since 1991, with roles in the second, third, fourth, fifth, and now sixth assessment plans. He shared in 2007 the Nobel Peace Prize with other IPCC participants and Al Gore, and it is such a pleasure to welcome Mark back. Welcome, Mark, and welcome, Barbara. Great to have you with us. Welcome to you. Good morning. Mark, we spoke with you just before the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow last year. And since COP26, um, as, as Anna Greta was just saying, the Working Group 2 contribution to the IPCC sixth assessment report has been released, and that focuses on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. What have we learned about our vulnerability to impacts of climate change since Glasgow, just a few months ago? Well, obviously, the IPCC report was using literature that had been produced over the last several years. And so so there wasn't so much the instant update uh, that you know recent events would have, have indicated. But what the report did show was, as, as the uh, Secretary General of the UN said, uh, it was an atlas of human suffering and a, a demonstrated failure of leadership for not responding to climate change because of the evidence here and the clear rationale for much greater action uh, by all countries. And so what the report showed was, in a nutshell, was that climate change is here right now um, and it's really costing many people dearly. More change is likely, and in both cases, that's most likely to impact most severely on the most disadvantaged people. And the positive thing coming out of this report is it, it shows the whole range or, or a large range of adaptation options which could be adopted and the facilitating factors that underpin the adoption of those adaptations that could make things less bad than they otherwise would be. Barbara, would you like to comment on how you see those issues around vulnerability and adaptation sort of playing out in the light of, of this most recent report? Well, certainly, uh, as Mark has indicated, that report confirmed, actually strengthened its findings around the science and the need for adaptation and the vulnerability of uh, communities has just been uh, pointed out. And clearly, recent experience in Australia has dramatically confirmed that as well. So with the fires 2019 and twenty. Uh, followed by the floods, or indeed some communities have uh, experienced in the last uh, less than five years the end of drought, wildfire, then floods, and then more floods, particularly on the east coast of Australia. So I think that the communities in Australia are experiencing these impacts directly, and what I'm finding is that uh, it is having 
a strong effect on community understanding and appreciation that climate change is real. What I mean by that is uh, we're really finding that uh, somebody either knows someone or a family member or a friend who have been directly affected by these uh, impacts of fire and flood. And so that is beginning to uh, strike literally at home. Mm. Mark, one of the things that stood out to me from the Working Group 2 contribution to the IPCC sixth assessment cycle was this idea that climate change impacts and risks are becoming increasingly complex and more difficult to manage. The report goes on to read, multiple climate hazards will occur simultaneously and multiple climatic and non-climatic risks will interact, resulting in compounding overall risk and risk cascading across sectors and regions. In the context of the recent floods on Australia's east coast and the black summer only a couple of years beforehand, how exposed is Australia to these risks? Look, it's a great question, Anna Greta, and the, the, the concept of complex and, and cascading risks is, is not entirely new. It's the first time it's been presented in the IPCC reports. But what it does, I think it highlighted what the lived experience of people are. And so, so for example, if you look back to the black summer period, we, we had in a really serious drought, we had, you know, incredibly hot temperatures, we had the fire and we had the smoke, you know, all coming together. And so, so there was that, that sort of element of that complexity, things feeding back to each other. And then there was the element of cascading impacts. So, you know, the fires are shutting down the electricity, which shut down the petrol stations and the ATMs and the communication systems. And so, uh, people didn't know what to do. They couldn't get information. They couldn't get out of uh, where they were in the bad in a bad place. And so, so we had that sort of cascading element. And so, I think people are starting to recognise um, that these things don't come as an individual thing. They actually come as a package, and and you have to manage the package, not the individual component. And then that spreads out. You know, there's primary impacts, and then secondary impacts are. And secondary impacts where uh, distant parts of the economy or, or our society are affected. And, and Barbara just mentioned, you know, the, the connections, you know, we know someone who knows someone who is affected by the fire or the floods or the heat waves, but also impacts which can occur subsequently. So, you know, immediate impacts, say, of heat stress and uh, increased risk of cardiac arrest, but subsequent impacts on long-term health consequences, say, smoke inhalation or on mental health uh, which may run out for years. And so so what we're actually seeing is a, an understanding and recognition of these much broader set of impacts of, of climate events uh, than we previously did. Barbara, I'm often struck by the conversations that I will have with people where people are talking about their fear for next summer or their fear for the next disaster, even while we're experiencing a current disaster. And at the moment, of course, it's it's the floods on the East Coast. And Barbara, you wrote an incredibly powerful piece in the conversation recently about Australia's lack of preparation for these increasingly severe and often simultaneous disasters. The federal government launched the new National Climate Resilience and Adaptation Strategy at COP26. Could you tell us a little bit about that plan and also just talk us through why you're concerned that it's not going far enough? Let's just go back a little bit over the last 10 years because I think it paints the context for that plan. From about 2013, I would argue there's been a systematic dismantling of action on uh, climate change adaptation at the national level. began with the abolition of the uh, National Climate Commission, then uh, cuts to CSIRO, so then to abolish their climate change adaptation flagship. I was on their national advisory committee at that time, so I know exactly what happened then uh, cuts to uh, the funding for or defunded uh, the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility based at Griffith University, which if you think about it, if you can imagine if uh, those young researchers had been continued to be supportive nearly 10 years ago, they, they would be at the leading edge today advising these towns about the future. So I just want to paint that picture that the essentially the national government has in the last nearly 10 years withdrawn from this space. So um, when it came to COP26, there is uh, a requirement or at least expected, I guess, is the word that nation states will table an adaptation plan or an updated adaptation plan. And uh, the national government did that. But uh, I have to say, you could really only describe it as a, a tick and flick exercise, a compliance exercise. 
Um, it was uh, announced an office uh, which isn't funded. It announced a better sharing of data and uh, partnerships, whatever that might mean. So in terms of real action, funded action, programs, another program they abolished was the uh, local adaptation pathways for climate change adaptation. You can just tell by the words that the, what the intent was there, which is very successful, in fact, with local councils. And so none of that is there in this new plan. And so, um, yes, I just regarded it as a compliance exercise and not doing anything for the communities that are facing these risks now and in the future. I'm really struck by what we're failing to learn, and I'm sure many of our listeners have had the same sense as they watched the floods unfold uh, in recent time. The parallels with our experience of Black Summer are, are so real and so so much in li- living memory. The Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements was released only a year or so ago. We did our podcast uh, discussion of this in June last year. And I'm wondering why we haven't acted on that Royal Commission, which I think created quite a nice pathway for local and regional and, and federal government response to these sorts of events, to shift us from a disaster response to a proactive preparation. Barbara, have you got any insights into to why we can't seem to contend with the, you know, with the information that is right in front of us? Well, I guess my view is that um, it's uh, quite a deep answer in that, um, yes, the Royal Commission was the findings were a series of recommendations, very good recommendations, including one uh, which relates to my field in urban planning, which talked about mandatory, not recommended, but mandatory consideration of natural disaster risk in land use planning decisions. It was recommendation 19.3, not acted on as well. But in terms of answering your question directly, uh, there are a lot of vested interests in uh, the way that our development process continues. If you build a a suburb successfully and then roll out the next suburb and the next one, and the next one's even cheaper because it's on uh, low-lying land at risk, and you've also got pressures from on high to provide affordable housing coming to the council, and a developer comes to the council, uh, uh, um, you can work it out for yourselves. So the politics is, uh, is is such that it can be fraught and you can see pretty clearly why a council would be saying yes to further subdivision. The fact is the system allows for it. The fact is that uh, the planning system allows for it. And so uh, in the article, in the conversation that I wrote, I really uh, called strongly for a review of our urban planning systems across Australia to, in fact, uh, enact that recommendation from the Royal Commission that there is embedded in planning legislation across Australia the consideration, mandatory consideration of climate risks to mitigate these uh, these circumstances in the future. Mark Howden, here at ANU, we did quite a lot of work around the impacts of the Black Summer. Um, and, and I know you, you led that with the Climate Change Institute. We contributed to that Royal Commission with a number of submissions. Have, have you got insight into why we haven't taken that report, which I thought created quite a nice pathway forward to reduce the risks of natural disasters? Why can't we act on that report from your perspective? I think Barbara covered some of it, you know, that there's a whole stack of vested interests. There's a, a whole series of ways of doing things, so essentially culture uh, around development. And, uh, and of course, if you're going to um, take the recommendations uh, and, and implement them, it, it actually implies that you're taking the issue seriously, the issue of climate change. And, and, and that would be, to some extent, a mismatch with what we've seen from policy, uh, where, where, in fact, that, uh, as Barbara was laying out, uh, that we don't see um, policy matching the requirements uh, from the broader community. And, and so, so you'd have to think that it would have been a, a tough call, you know, or unlikely call for the uh, Royal Commission recommendations to have been implemented in full and in the spirit in which they were given. Mark, we've talked a, a number of times on this pod with you and, and with others about Australia's laggard status on a whole range of climate policy issues. And I've sometimes heard the argument that, you know, countries that appear to be doing a lot more than Australia um, are actually not acting as they are talking, that they may have policies in place, but they're not acting. But of course, Australia hasn't even got to the point of having substantive policies in place. 
I wonder if you could just talk us through how Australia is currently comparing with its international peers when it comes to adaptation in particular, and how important that international peer pressure might be in shifting some of the political discourse in Australia. Yes, so it's a very mixed view across the globe. And what you're saying is clearly true in relation to greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, we look at Paris, lots of commitments to reduce emissions, and they've been reiterated in subsequent conference of parties, uh, even larger emission reduction commitments last year uh, in the the lead up to the Glasgow conference of parties and at that meeting. And yet what we see is a continued uh, increase in greenhouse gas emissions. So the IEA report just a a week or so ago uh, identified that uh, last year was the largest greenhouse gas emissions ever, Um, so record levels. And and so clearly countries in aggregate are not meeting their commitments un- under the Paris Agreement and subsequent instruments. And, and so, so it, you know, that's a clear you know, evidence in aggregate that we're not actually doing that, whereas what we see is that some countries are actually meeting their commitments. And so if you go, for example, to the European uh, Union and also the UK and various other countries, they are actually pretty much on track to, to meeting their Paris Agreement uh, emission reductions. Yet Australia, um, even by the government's own analysis, is not on track. And so, so that's the challenge here is how do we move from where we are, um, which is with a, a very modest proposal, which we're actually not on track to meeting, uh, to step up to those countries which have much more ambitious um, emission reduction commitments and actually do seem to be actually doing the work now, what we see in terms of adaptation is, is different because there is no sort of aggregate uh, accumulative index of, of performance on adaptation. And so, so we're much more reliant on, on much finer scale uh, information, which is not necessarily connected with, co- collected with sort of uniformity and, and standards in place. And so it's very hard to make some overall statement in terms of adaptation. But again, as, as Barbara said, is that in Australia, we've largely dropped the ball when it comes to adaptation research. And, uh, and if we look at productivity across uh, adaptation, you know, literature produced by researchers, you know, it's dropped massively since about 2012, 2013. And, and so um, we're, we're not in a great position to, to actually bring innovation to the table uh, when it comes to climate change adaptation, yet right now is when we actually do need that innovation, where we do need those different ideas being brought into the into the domain, so uh, communities can actually make better decisions than they have in the past. So, so I'd, I'd actually say that at the moment um, we're probably not doing at the national level particularly well on adaptation. Um, but what we see is at, at a smaller scale, we see, do see acknowledgement of of climate change. Um, and implementation of activities. And that, that ranges from community level to business <clears throat> level to, you know, quite large corporations who seem to be taking climate change much more seriously now. And, and of course, there's the regulators and the Reserve Bank who are also putting on pressure uh, to, to actually uh, toe the line. And there's the broader investment community, which is actually sending pretty strong signals now that uh, climate adaptation and emission reduction a core business, they're no longer an add-on, they're actually fundamental and they're being demanded by shareholders. Those kinds of conversations and shifts that we're seeing, I think at least give us some small hope of some some small hope of change and, and some level of optimism. That perhaps is a good place for us to take a break just for a moment. And we will be back in just a few minutes with Barbara and Mark. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Barbara Norman and Mark Howden. We're talking about climate change and the, the growing and somewhat desperate need for Australia to invest in climate adaptation. Barbara, before the break, we were talking about your piece in the conversation about why Australia needs to act urgently on climate adaptation. You propose a number of steps to ensure that Australia is better prepared as these disasters become more frequent and severe. They include an integrated national climate action plan, a national coastal strategy, and reviewing urban planning legislation, amongst others. Could you tell us a little bit about what these steps might involve? Certainly. So the first one is really, I think we're moving away from, or moving forward, I guess, from having separate plans on mitigation and adaptation to uh, taking a much more integrated approach, um, ensuring that uh, we connect the dots properly, if you like, to make sure that uh, we don't do something in the mitigation strategy that uh, that adversely affects adaptation and, and vice versa. So an integrated plan where we've thought through those connections and, as I've said, they're uh, importantly a funded program uh, with practical support for lower levels of government and communities. The second one is very much around a need for a coastal plan. Well, you know, I did my PhD on coast and climate change. I think I started back in 2003 and I've been talking about the, this need since then. So that's about 20 years. Even when I did that PhD, I think I documented we at that point had had over 25 national inquiries and reports uh, coming to the same conclusion and all of which have been ignored. The coastal councils themselves, who are right at the sharp end of this, are facing coastal erosion, sea level rise, uh, storm surges, coincidence of events like we had in the Brisbane floods with inland flooding and a storm surge at the same time. Uh, They've now joined together to set up a, a coastal National Coastal Association and have, again, called for a national coastal plan to help them deal with these issues. So that's what the second one's about, and it's still uh, there's an urgency to that. Uh, just quickly reviewing uh, urban planning legislation and city plans. Really, you know, we inherited, like many things, uh, our planning system from the British. It didn't factor in any of these sorts of considerations. It's long, long overdue for a significant reform. Like many uh, policy areas in Australia, we have a different planning act for each state and territory, so there are variations as well. And as we know from recent events, whether it's the the fires of 2019-20 or the floods just in the last two weeks, they are now crossing state boundaries. So um, that brings in a national interest test in the first place. And secondly, it, I guess, highlights yet again, we need a national review of planning legislation to ensure that it's considering climate risk appropriately. I could go on, I guess, but there's... <laughs> there's. Uh, uh, we could talk last... about this for a very long time, Barbara. I know we could. <laughs> okay, right. And I'm sure people would like to listen to, to you talking about this. Um, but just I'll just finish with one point there. I won't go through them all. But this we have talked about uh, investment in research. This isn't just just another call for money for research. This is a desperate need by local councils for informed, evidence based research, so they know that they can make the most appropriate decisions and the most uh, wise investments for for now and in the future. This is this is real. It is affecting communities, and they need this kind of advice today. Barbara, I'm I'm going to invite you to go a little bit further with this because I wanted to ask you about something that I I, I see constantly happening around us, and it is just beyond alarming. And we often talk about in places like Western Sydney as having the kinds of urban development that is going to lead to incredible heat and incredible problems in terms of livability. Um, but you know we're here in the ACT, which is a place that has done incredibly well in terms of renewable energy, in terms of emissions, and yet I see developments, particularly in some of the the outer some of the outer suburbs of Canberra, going up at the moment in ways that are going to make them 
almost unlivable within a few short years. You know, no green spaces, incredibly dense living, concrete as far as you can see. And I, I take your point, and I think it's so important that we need research, we need a national approach to this, but it always seems to me we also need some kind of urgent intervention because once those developments are in place, it's too late to do very much about it. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Barbara, on what we what we do in terms of immediate action while we're trying to put in place those much-needed medium and longer-term actions. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the urgency. So in the ACT, we have done very well. Um, I was the inaugural chair of the ACT Climate Change Council, Mark's the current chair, and um, we uh, did extremely well on the renewable energy front and making progress on electrifying uh, the transport system. The next really big challenge, and it is urgent in my view, is the built environment. And again, it's the same point I made earlier. There's, I think it's possibly the hardest change to occur uh, because there are so many vested interests. Don't forget that uh, um, uh, state governments, territory governments uh, rely on strong income source from revenue source from uh, development processes uh, that's built into the system. The pattern of development is uh, there's an inertia to change that as we've discussed. Uh, so there's, there's significant barriers to change in the built environment and, and it will directly affect the way we do business. And so it is hard, but it has to happen. The reason I keep coming back to legislation is I think it's the only way we'll get change is to enforce it through the law. Uh, guidelines will not work on this. We've seen this happen before. And when it comes to uh, doing the actual development, most people look at, well, what do I have to do and what, what don't I have to do? And, and maybe you'll have one or two developers consider those guidelines. So uh, landscaping, uh, not having black roofs, uh, having enough space for um, for greenery around, uh, water-sensitive urban design. There's a whole list of things we could be doing, uh, obviously embedding renewable energy as well. But until we make it mandatory, it won't happen. I sound like a cynical old planner, but uh, after many, uh, many decades in this field, and I was national president of the Planning Institute when I was a practitioner for a long time, so I've led the profession in that sense, uh, definitely it needs to be mandated through legislation to affect change. That requires our political leaders to put that into place in the uh, whether it's the ACT Assembly or the state parliaments, or it requires leadership from the national level to, um, to they can't force it to happen, but I'll just quickly give you an example of how they can do it. Some of you will remember how they implemented the national competition policy. They basically said to the states and territories, you're not going to get any money until you, for these sorts of things, until you make these changes, efficiency changes. I would argue we could do exactly the same with uh, works, funds coming through for, say, infrastructure projects and a range, a raft of capital works programs. Commonwealth saying you're not getting any funding until uh, you embed these changes into your practices at the local level. Oh, Barbara, I don't think you sound like a cynical planner. I think you sound like an expert that we should be listening to now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mark, could, could I ask, uh, just ask you, if we, if we think about climate adaptation globally, it's often people um, who are, are living in situations of poverty or extreme disadvantage, or at least from low socioeconomic backgrounds, people living in small island states, um, and First Nations people who are most impacted. So we often see, you know, patterns of discrimination intersecting with the real challenges around climate. How can Australian policymakers ensure that this country's adaptation measures are carried out in a way that's just and doesn't reinforce those patterns of discrimination? Yeah, it is one of the clear sort of conclusions from that uh, IPCC report that not only is climate change already impacting most heavily on those uh, poor and disadvantaged people that you mentioned, but future climate changes are just going to accelerate uh, and enhance that disparity there. But the other part of that picture, of course, is that those people in many cases uh, have made the least contribution to climate change. Their greenhouse gas emissions uh, are very low on a per capita basis. Uh, compared with, say, those of uh, people 
in Australia on average where our emissions are often 10 times or more higher than those those uh, disadvantaged people. So there is a, a really significant sort of equity and justice uh, issue that arises and which is flagged in this report. Now, the way to deal with it, this, of course, is uh, essentially from leadership and, and that's uh, uh, leadership which is pushing the allocation of global funds uh, more adequately to adaptation. So the IPCC report indicated that only between 4 to 8% of the, of the global climate change response monies, the $100 billion promised at Paris, uh, was actually being allocated to adaptation activities. And, and yet it's actually there's a broad recognition in the, in the aid field that it needs to be essentially parity with uh, the emission reduction, the mitigation activities. And uh, because adaptation directly impacts on people's quality of lives and livelihoods and health and the environment. And, and yet we don't see that happening to the extent that uh, is recognised as being needed. Secondly, I think there's uh, roles within our region which are about how do we lift the game in terms of adaptation across the, the region and ensuring that uh, countries are more effectively positioned in terms of adaptation responses. And, and Australia already has a significant um, aid component which which contributes to climate adaptation and, and has done for many years now. But I, I guess there's questions about uh, some of the expenditure. And, and one of the things that uh, um, people have commented in relation to the, the national strategy was it, it, you know, biased very heavily towards provision of more climate information as being the solution. Um, whereas what I think we need now is much more action and learning from that action. And that, I think, as a, as a general concept, could be brought into the aid program as well. Mark, we had um, Siobhan McDonnell on the, the pod last year, just around the time of COP26, talking about the, the efforts that were led by the Pacific Island nations to establish a loss and damages fund, efforts that, that were widely supported but not supported by some of the most powerful countries globally and, and didn't get up. But I'm wondering what, what you think Australia's role needs to be globally, particularly in terms of relations with Pacific Island countries and thinking about adaptation in our immediate region, you know, what what would you like to see? You, what would you like us to see Australia doing? Yeah, so the the loss and damage agenda is, is at this point highly politicised and and pretty polarised, and so um, it's it's hard to see an immediate resolution uh, using the current framework. So so we've seen some progress uh, in the various conference of parties. Uh, but but not to the extent that the say the Pacific Islands or other island nations would like to see, and and the the idea here is that when when you have uh, an extreme event which may a climate related extreme event which which causes significant loss and damage to those islands, the question comes about uh, compensation and uh, rehabilitation and 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 uh, reconstruction and uh, and who pays for that and so that's the the fundamentals here, and the the challenge there of course is. Uh, where you, you have a you know a cyclone that hits hits a, an island state, you know how much of that is is influenced by climate change, and and that's that's a, in a sense a fairly um, sort of bureaucratic argument. Whereas I think what the Pacific Islands would like to see is, regardless of what we attribute the cause to, um, let's pitch in to help and to actually position um, that island state so those people don't suffer the same consequences when the next perhaps stronger cyclone hits. And so, so I think that requires uh, a much stronger partnership approach uh, where there's recognition that the, 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 the government of those countries and the communities and individuals in those countries have valid viewpoints and have valid knowledge to contribute to more effective adaptation responses. These questions are so important and this topic of adaptation is, I think, central and going to only grow in the decades that are ahead. Barbara, your work on coastal adaptation has shown us the climate vulnerability around the coastal parts of Australia, both now, as we've just seen recently, and for, for the decades we have ahead of us. We've seen similarly that those of us who live in forested areas uh, are vulnerable to fire. We know that heat waves in places like the Northern Territory, Central Australia, uh, the rural parts of uh, New South Wales and parts of our cities like Western Sydney and the outer suburbs of Melbourne are vulnerable to heat waves. 
And so some of us are beginning to wonder about the concept of uninhabitability. Are there places which will become difficult or perhaps impossible to live in maybe during particular seasons or particularly with with a, a climate phenomenon like La Nina or El Nino? How do we talk about uninhabitability? How do we talk about moving populations? Uh, we talk about it very sensitively. Mm-hmm. It's a um, definitely not a conversation to be having uh, in the middle of a crisis. We've heard all sorts of immediate solutions by some of our political leaders in the last couple of weeks. Um, that's not appropriate. Uh, we need to be, during the, the non-crisis periods, begin begin this conversation in this country and begin it in a way that is a conversation with communities and a conversation that looks at scenarios and looks at options in a very non-threatening way. Um, I think uh, the conversation must always provide hope and uh, interest and even possibly uh, excitement about what, what could be created as a better future for some of these communities. I think uh, we have done it successfully. Look, Grantham has been spoken about uh, again more recently where they had as many floods in as many years, over three years in fact, and so the community there themselves decided to move up the hill, or most of them did, and uh, with the support of a, a reconstruction authority, the Queensland Reconstruction Authority, uh, and, uh, and just in the floods in the last couple of weeks, those who did move uphill were not affected. And so that's, and of course, we've done it in a top-down way, which I would not be recommending, but certainly we've done it uh, in the past. The Snowy Hydro Scheme would be one clear example and we build mining towns, hopefully less in the future. So I think uh, we have the expertise, we've got the capability, but the effort needs to go into beginning these conversations with the community, looking at the options, looking at the possibilities, looking at the scenarios, pushing those boundaries right out. As I've said uh, many times, what if there's half a metre sea level rise? What if there's one? What if there's one and a half? What if there's two? And if someone says, that will never happen here, well, then look at it and do the work because then at least the communities have thought through these issues, looked at the implications and will be prepared for when the inevitable happens. Mm. There will be, just to finish, just to conclude, there will be areas that are uninhabitable. I think there's no question about that and I think that heat is possibly the biggest risk in parts of our country. Yep, that's what I think. As a, as a health practitioner working in the area, yep. So one of the things, just chipping in there, is is for politicians and others, I think, immediately after an event is to resist the promise of just building it back the same way it was. Mm. And because uh, otherwise, in a sense, the concrete sets on the decision-making processes and, and it limits the ability for those sorts of discussions that, uh, Barbara talked about, you know, uh, very informed and and potentially exciting discussions about a, a new and better future. And, and that idea about betterment, you know, building back better, is actually embedded into the Sendai framework, the international framework in terms of disaster risk. And so so this is a, a global uh, sort of proposition to, to actually um, start to recognise the issues associated with extreme events and damage and, and actually improve uh, the, the situation subsequently. And in relation to the scenarios of, of future change, um, when we're actually, say, building a house, we expect it perhaps to, to sit around for 100 years, maybe more. And, uh, and in, in that 100 years, uh, um, a lot will happen uh, at, at current projections. You know, we're, we're heading up at, at least, it would seem, to two degrees. Uh, our sea level rise by the end of uh, this century could be up to a metre or more um, if you take the additional processes that aren't built into some of the models, uh, it actually could be one and three quarter metres by the end of this century. And uh, and heading, you know, could the IPCC Working Group 1 report couldn't discount a sea level rise of five metres by halfway through next century. And so, so within the lifetime of infrastructure we're putting in now, we could actually see very, very substantial changes. So as Barbara says, we actually need to be factoring that in to um, suburb location, to building design, to um, design of infrastructure, to um, how we think about um, suburbs functioning uh, in terms of, say, access to health. And 
And so, so we need to be very forward-looking in these issues, and at the moment we're just not quite there. I find myself reflecting on one of the early statements in that Royal Commission into National Natural Disasters, that unprecedented is not a, no excuse for being underprepared. We have the climate science and we, we understand the projections. I think we can use our imagination and the science to, to see what might lie ahead. And I, that message of hope, Barbara, that you mentioned earlier and bringing people along on a, a journey of imagination and creativity, I, I think is part of the pathway forward. We could talk about these issues for many hours, and, and certainly I'd like to, uh, but we're going to need to bring the conversation to a close. We like to finish with, with a single message, from perhaps from both of you, one key message or policy idea that you would like people to take away from today's discussion. And for those who are listening in, in, per, in um, positions of influence, what one thing should we be doing right now? Barbara? Uh, we should embed climate risks and the climate science into everyday decision-making affecting the built environment now. Mark Howden. I think we should learn the lessons from COVID that that science does actually have a really constructive role here and and think that uh, timely responses are good, but informed, equitable and timely responses are much, much better. Absolutely. Mark Howden, Barbara Norman, it has been so great speaking with you both today. Thank you very much for your expertise and knowledge and generosity in sharing with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Anna Greta and Sharon. Anna Greta, that was an incredible conversation. It's a confronting and a difficult set of issues to talk through, but I did feel as though Mark and Barbara left us with just a little bit of hope and optimism, which is what we really need as well. Absolutely. I'm sure that so many of us at the moment, we're we're sick of disaster. We're having real difficulty, I think, engaging in sequential catastrophe and disasters, and particularly since it is so real. I think uh, one of our guests earlier was commenting on the fact that for most of us in Australia now, We either have been directly affected ourselves or we know someone who's been affected by a climate change-driven natural disaster, particularly struck that the 12 million or more of us who breathe the hazardous air pollution associated with the bushfire smoke. So it's a huge proportion of our community now that understands that lived experience of climate change. And we can see that the decades ahead will be challenging. We can see that the question about habitability in particular regions really does need to be discussed. And so I think that the the take-home message for me from our two amazing guests today is how to discuss that with compassion and caring, intelligence and science, and giving us some excitement uh, about the opportunities that we've got for change moving forward. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that's right. And I've, I've got Mark's words ringing in my ears, which is, you know, for decision makers and our political leaders to avoid the temptation to build back as it was. And we're seeing that in the wake of disasters. We're seeing it in the wake of COVID-19, you know, and Barbara mapped beautifully, I think, what some of those competing interests are Mm. that decision makers and politicians are facing. Mm. But I think ultimately we, we have to reach the position where the greatest interest we have is the survival of the planet, the survival of our communities, the survival of our families. And that has to be prioritised against the other interests that have competed for space in the past. We just have to think differently. And I love Barbara's idea of us doing that with excitement and mm. thinking about what we could create. And you know, that idea of Marx that we need informed, equitable and timely responses, you know, there are just such powerful lessons there for us to to Mm. think about. Absolutely. I see hope in the policy landscape. I know that there's such a large number of amazing people that are are ready to assist, uh, ready to work with communities, ready to inform the policy space. And if we can grow that enthusiasm within our government structures, either locally or regionally, at a state level and particularly federally, we really can shape a better future for Australia particularly. Absolutely. And and I, I think you know, Barbara's point about we need research, this is not just a call for research funding. Mm. If we are going to have solutions and we are going to bring excitement and creativity to our futures, that's through research. Mm. That's what researchers can bring. Mm. So I think we, we really need to centre that need for knowledge. We'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed today in the show notes on policyforum.net. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. 
please do share this conversation with your friends, with, with within your communities. It's so important that we continue this conversation, that we get these messages out and, and have people discussing them. But Anna Greta, before we close today, we recently here within the ANU community lost a dear colleague and an incredibly creative thinker, uh, Professor Brendan Sargent. Would you like to, to, to talk a little about Brendan's enormous yeah. contribution? So I, I'm sure many listeners have been thinking about the parallels between Black Summer and the experience that we had there and the most recent floods and our failure in a policy way to engage with adaptation. And I learned so much from Professor Brendan Sargent in our conversations that we had on the podcast last year and in, in our other work outside that. Brendan was an amazing man. So he joined our podcast last year to discuss the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements. Brendan was head of the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre here after a successful career in the Australian Public Service with the Department of Defence. His wisdom and generosity in sharing ideas to improve our future in face of unprecedented challenge was remarkable. Brendan passed away just recently in a quite unexpected way. Policy Forum Pod sends our condolences to Brendan's friends, colleagues, and particularly to his family. We will miss him. Thanks, Anna Greta. I think Brendan demonstrates to us so powerfully that an individual can make a difference. Listeners, please do get in touch with us and let us know what you have thought about this episode and other episodes. You can join us on our Facebook group. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us there and there's a really active and interesting discussion going on. Listeners, you may like to join us on our Facebook group. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find us there and you'll find a really active and interesting discussion um, around the, the issues that we talk about here on Policy Forum Pod. And you'll also find some really interesting discussions coming out of Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny and the National Security Podcast. You can also reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or via email on podcast at policyforum.net. But for now, we'll be back next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. From me, Anagreta Hunter, I'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.